Welcome to Tokyo Speaks. I'm Cliff, your host. And uh, yeah, you're listening to the collective voice of Tokyo's international community. Yeah, this is episode, let's see, this is episode 81, all right? And uh, before I introduce today's featured guests, I'm going to let the co-host, my co-host, introduce herself. She's actually been featured on the podcast a while back. And uh, yeah, so introduce yourself. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Cliff. It's me, Jasmine, a.k.a. Enlightize on YouTube. Cool. Yeah, we had a lot of fun mm-hmm. back in the uh, Mobile Man Cave. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Buddha, my original co-host of the podcast. So yeah, if you're a new listener, formerly, this podcast is formerly known as the Raw Urban Mobile Podcast, but uh, I recently rebranded the podcast to Tokyo Speaks. Um, so when you go back and listen to older episodes, you will hear Raw Urban Mobile Podcast, but it is the same podcast. All right, so today's future guest is someone who I've known about for a while now, um, and it's my first time meeting her, um, but I believe we have mutual acquaintances and friends. I was I was talking to some friends uh, about her, and she was like, oh, she is very, she's spicy, she's ambitious. Yeah, she's a go-getter. And I was just like, oh, wow, I definitely want to have her on then. I see that. I yeah, see that. yeah. So I'll let her introduce herself. Thanks for having me, Cliff and Jasmine. Um, this is Amber. Um, so I'm originally from Harbin, China, and I grew up in Japan. I've been in Japan for about uh, 11 years now. And now I'm the co-founder of uh, Zebra Global, a highly selective blockchain market entry consulting firm. Um, I used to work for tech companies and governmental agencies like uh, Google, the MM.com Group, UNDP, and Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, I'm very passionate about social impacts. Um, when I was 19, I founded TEDxOpungi, uh, which is an independently organized TED organization that encourages social innovation in Japan. And I'm also involved with uh, other global women's initiatives, such as uh, uh, Google Women Well, Girls 20, and my own uh, organization, She Shaped which is a global community that celebrates and empowers women from all industries. Wow. That was that was a lot. That was a lot. So You're everywhere. Yeah. Founder of Tex Rapongi and uh TEDx Rapongi, excuse me. We're going to talk about that a little later on. Also, you said women's women's will? Uh women will. Women yeah. will. Okay. It's a Google uh initiative which okay. is um, I think in every country, the agenda is different. And in Japan, it's to uh, basically create more uh, women leaders and um, uh, implement like work-life balance in traditional Japanese companies. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool, cool. All right, so in Amber, you you're originally from China, right? Yeah, okay. Harbin, China. Harbin, China. Okay. Um what was it like growing up in Harbin, China? And I guess you said until like 14, 15, right? Yeah, it's actually really rough because <laughs> we are known as the like most aggressive Chinese people because uh it's basically on the border of Russia and then the city is like half Russian, half Chinese. Oh, really? Yeah, and um actually before um my mom's generation the second language education there is Russian. Yeah, and it's really really cold. It's like minus 40. Wow. Uh, like 30 to 40 in winter. 
Wow. I haven't been back in ages (laughs) (laughs) because of the weather. (laughs) And, you know, so you you grew up there. um, How was your childhood? Would you say it's a good childhood or so-so? I would say as a Chinese child, you're you're basically just studying. Studying. (laughs) Yeah, so like your childhood equals to studying. Wow. (laughs) It's like you study in school and then you go to cram school and then you go to school again. Yeah, so that was like my life until... um, Junior high, I would say, where like I got a little bit like rebellious when I was in junior high, like got involved with some like, um, I would say like cool kids. Okay. Yeah. And then um, like it sounds a little bit messed up, but actually in China, it's like in, in a lot of schools, like physical abuse is like actually quite common from like teachers. Like if you talk in class or you do, don't do your homework, like the teacher will like beat you. Really? And then when I was um, 14, basically, because I got like a little bit rebellious. And when the teacher tried to like beat me because I talked in class and I like beat her back, <laughs> and oh, then really? I dropped out. <laughs> and so uh, you just, that's wait, actually you why I came her? to Japan. <laughs> yeah, like kind of like slapped her. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. What was the con- what was the consequence for that? Um, I think if we like bribe the teacher in the school, like I don't need to get expelled. But then, um, because when I was six, my parents got divorced, and then my mom um married my stepdad who's Japanese, and she moved to Japan, and then she always wanted me to come to Japan. So that was just an opportunity for her to be like, oh, you should just come to Japan. Yeah, and then I just. Decided to come to Japan, and I didn't speak Japanese or English back then. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really know what I was in for. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, you moved to what part of Japan? Mie, right? Mie, yeah. Okay, which is I have no. Clue. It's like it, south. It's okay. south of Tokyo. South of Tokyo. Yeah, Isejingu. Yeah, there. Isejingu. Yeah, okay. I've actually never been. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> That's the only place I went to. Mie. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. Oh, so it's a been, really small town. You've been to Mie then? Yeah, I oh. have. It was interesting. Okay. <laughs> I'm used to like more diversity, uh, even I in know. Tokyo. Oh my gosh! Yeah. yeah, and I went with my Australian friend who is ethnically Taiwanese. She was pretending she was Japanese. <laughs> oh, okay. So people were just staring at me, and she would stare at me too to join in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So how was Mie? I was definitely very shocked when I um, first got to Mie mm-hmm. because Harbin is is it's not like a top tier city in China, but still, you know, it's a prefecture. We have like 40 million people and it's a city. And then when I got to Mie, it's basically there's like no one on the street. And um, most people are very old. Mm. Yeah. And uh, like Jasmine said, it's not very uh, diverse. Yeah. So it's yeah. like rural life, country life. Yeah. Okay. I would say it's, uh, like the biggest international community there is probably like Chinese people and Brazilian people because there's a lot of like factories in the area. Oh, okay. Yeah. Manufacturing is huge. Mm. Yeah. So you said your school life in China was very studious, right? That's the typical life for kids. Would you equate that to uh, when you came to Japan? Was it similar? No way. <laughs> okay. So. Yeah, I think when I got here, basically because I was uh, turning 15, and then I had to take high school entrance exam, and I didn't speak Japanese or English, and then I just took the exam. And, of course, like I did horribly, and then I went to this high school. They basically never had their graduates enter university. Yeah, and then, uh, but when I was there, actually, I, I would say, like, maybe 50% of the students were um, international. They're, like, Brazilian or Chinese who don't really speak Japanese, and that's why they're uh, they're there. Um, so this is your high school? This is my high school, wow. Yimie, yeah. Or Japanese kids who just have really bad grades, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I, I isolated myself so much that I didn't really, like interact so much mm-hmm. because basically when I got there and I realized most of these 
students are not going to university. Mm-hmm. And that's not what I want for my life. And then、uh, I started talking to、uh, my aunt who lived in Japan for over like 20 years. And she went to like Chuo University and just asked her, like, how can I possibly go to university? Because obviously I can't compete with other like Japanese students if I take the standard exam. And then she told me,、um, Um, basically, back then、uh, in Japan, there was this、uh, international education policy where they implemented every top university. So it's like if you just learn English and then you take the exam in English, then you have a chance to enter these top universities. Because basically, these、um, departments they teach all their curriculums in English, so they can cultivate like bilingual, international-minded students. Um, that enter society and then get into like international business and stuff like that. Yeah. So when and so basically when I was in high school, I just studied English fourteen hours a day for three for three years. And、um, how many hours a day? Fourteen hours a day for three years. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say I didn't really have a social life because I was just so focused. Like even while my school, I would just study my own thing,、mm. and then. I would say the teacher and the students don't really care because they because I never talk to them.、Okay. <laughs> like I'm just like doing my own thing. Yeah. So the classes were in English.、Uh, in, in in my high school, the classes were in Japanese. Yeah. Oh, okay. But、so、in my university,、Japanese. the classes、okay. are all in English.、Yeah. Okay. Wow. So、uh, I'm just trying to picture that, like,、uh, you know. I was a very this, weird kid. Yeah. You're, <laughs> you're at this high school. All the all the classes are in English. I mean, excuse me. All the classes are in Japanese. But you're not really focused on learning Japanese. Yeah, but I was saying like the classes are so easy because it's not like a like a good high school. Okay, you know, so at all the exams, I still do very well. Like the、okay. math is like really easy, and then I mean the Japanese is a bit hard, but kind of picked it up along the way. So,、yeah. so, so even though you're not a native, you would say you still have a you can still understand a lot of Japanese.、Then. Yeah, I think it's. Um, relatively easy for Chinese people to pick up Japanese because、mm. we already have the same like Chinese characters、mm. and a lot of the pronunciation is quite、uh, similar. I would say the hardest part is probably just grammar because the grammar is like opposite to、yes. like English, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you said that there are a majority of Chinese people and Brazilian people, correct? So did you connect with any of the Chinese people at your school? Um. I would say back then I just like didn't really care because I was so focused on just like I need to go to university and that's like the only, and and I always feel like I was running out of time because I didn't really speak English back then and it was just like、um, and also back then、um, to apply for these top universities you need to have this certificate called Aiken and then you need to have like Aiken、uh, like JQ like pre Like what do you say? How do you say that in no, English? No, the pre like, levels, like the、oh, pre one, pre two, yeah, yeah. And then so basically, I would say like every three months, I would take an exam,、mm-hmm. and then I knew I was not going to pass.、Mm-hmm. But then to learn from experience, so in the end, I took the exam like eight times,、mm-hmm. and then the last time I passed,、mm-hmm. and then I applied for university. So I think because every three months I'm taking that exam, so I would feel like I was running out of time. So I just didn't really like. I was just like not really interested to、yeah. <laughs> like spend time on other things. Yeah. yeah. And and learning about you, you know, reading reading a few articles and listening to a podcast that you on, you you have this strong、uh, drive to be successful. Like, where where do you think that comes from? I think it probably comes from my、uh, high school experience. From your high school. Yeah,、experience. because I think when I was in high school, I think because I didn't really have a social life and I just wanted to. Like get out of there so much, and I wanted to come to Tokyo. I want to go to, go to the top university. It was almost like an impossible task. And then after I accomplished that, and I just 
feel like if I work hard at anything and I can do it. Yeah. So it's just about deciding like what I want and then figure out a way to get there and then I'll do the work. Yeah. So you're doing so many initiatives and event like you're doing so much. So what exactly is success for you? Uh, I think my personal mission is like to um, earn um, financial freedom mm-hmm. while also contributing uh, to like meaningful projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So which is why it's like I always have like my uh, main focus, which is like my full time job or my own company. And then I will also do other things on the side. Yeah. To feel like fulfilled. Yes. Yeah. All right. Cool. Cool. So and then you when you got to Tokyo for college, um, how, how was that for you adjusting? I mean, was it? What you imagine? Yeah, I, I I think to a certain extent, it's pretty awesome. It's like I finally like got to live in the city that I wanted to live in. And I would say living in Tokyo, um, I'm, I mean, choosing university in Tokyo is definitely more about network for me. Yeah, because it's like I want to work in business. I understand it's important to develop that network as much as possible, like before you actually start working. Yeah. Okay. Now we can talk about what you started to do professionally, um, how... How that got started? Um, yeah, so when I was um, a sophomore uh, student, I met a co-founder of uh, TEDx Tokyo, just like randomly at, uh, at a cafe. Okay. And that's how I got to know TEDx. And then I wanted to uh, start my own TEDx. And then at first I wanted to do like TEDx Hosei University, which is my university. Um, but then somehow they didn't uh, approve. Uh, the reason being TEDx has no educational benefits. What? How does that even work? I don't know. I think back then, basically, like, TEDx was not very big in Japan. And then it's it's very hard to explain. Yeah. And then plus, you know, this, uh, the administration is like, it's a university branding and they don't want you to, like, mess it up. So it got, like, rejected. And then um, I changed my license to TEDx Lopongi. Okay. And so why did you want to start TEDx Lopongi? I would say for every TEDx event, uh, there's a different theme. Uh, for my first event, I would say back then, um, I wanted to show my fellow students that there's another way other than job hunting. It's like you can have um, your own company, you know, like through entrepreneurship, uh, where you can um, start like interning at like startups or like the company you want to work for, like corporations. Um, and and that would be a much better way for you to like learn skills and then to understand like how are you competitive in the market instead of just going through the traditional job hunting which a lot of people know is like a very soul crashing experience it's like you might have 300 interviews in a year and then you get one job yeah so so that was the main purpose for my first event is to present like student entrepreneurship or like um young people who are like starting their own exciting businesses uh, and also just like people who have succeeded um, trying like a different way, not the traditional way. Yeah. I think it's astonishing how you come from a background, like especially when you came to Japan, surrounded by so many people, how you said like um, they become mothers directly, right? Because that's what they see. I think I also saw that in another (laughs) podcast. Is that okay? Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I think it's astonishing how you kind of broke out of an environment that was against everything everything that you're doing right now. So what do you think contributed to your interest in TEDx? Because I'm pretty sure just an everyday person who is in an environment who uh, isn't surrounded by, quote unquote, successful people, if they had that opportunity to meet someone from TEDx, they probably wouldn't appreciate it the same. So who or what do you think contributed contributed to your interest in entrepreneurship and uh, education and women's rights or yeah women empowerment? Right. Um, 
I would say like a big part of it is my personal model, which is from uh, Tony Morrison, is that when you get these jobs that you've been so brilliantly, <laughs> when you get these jobs you've been so brilliantly trained for, just remember that your real job is that if you're free, you need to free someone else. And if you have power, you need to empower someone else. Like for me, that means um, gratitude and service. I think for me, it's like when I think about where I come from, it's like I come from a like a small town in China and 11 years ago I only spoke one language and now I speak three and then now I'm like doing my own business and stuff like that and I would never have gotten here without like the unconditional support from my friends and then my mentors and it's important for me to like give back to the community because for me it's sort of like if I can get here then everybody can Mm -hmm. because literally like (laughs) I had such a like low beginning, I would say. Yeah, so it became like really important for me to feel like I'm giving back to the community to help other people in a meaningful way. And then to basically just do what other people have done for me is to see my potential and then to help me become independent. Yeah. I want to go back a little bit. So you coming from Harbin, China, and you know, you you were living in Mie and you know, eventually going to Tokyo. I hear about discrimination a lot. Right. Um, and, you know, discrimination is everywhere all over the world. But I've heard about discrimination um, cases with other Asians here in Japan. Did you ever experience that at any point? Uh, I think I definitely experienced some discrimination, but I didn't really care for it. Okay. Because I know it's not about me. It's about them. Okay. Yeah. And I was saying in high school, like, um, like bullying, like, like I was really surprised. Like, bullying is such a, a big problem in Japan. Yes. Yeah, because in my junior high, just in Harbin, it's like, if someone tried to bully you, you would be that person up. <laughs> and then yeah, it becomes yeah, a yeah. fight. They seem to yeah. be very, you guys seem to be very aggressive in, in Harbin. Yeah, because <laughs> like, like when I was in elementary school, like I mean, even like kindergarten, elementary school, junior high, it's like I always get into fights. And then these fights are like, someone bleed. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, 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 and it's like not, and, and it's really different from Japan where people just take it. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was yeah. in high school, I remember when I first like got here, I didn't really speak Japanese. And then went to like a bathroom and then a bunch of girls like closed the door. And then I didn't understand what they were doing. And then I and then I was just like, okay, I want to go out. And then I just pushed one of them. And then she fell and she cried. And she went to the teacher and said, I bullied her. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so that was uh, interesting. Mm. <laughs> yeah. This is Amber Chip. You're listening to Tokyo Speaks. And I love fried chicken and mashed potatoes. <laughs> Hi, this is Jasmine, a.k.a. Enlightis. You're listening to Tokyo Speaks. Uh, let's talk about um, what you're doing professionally now. You know, as you mentioned earlier, uh, at the beginning of the episode, you founded several groups and, and initiatives, and um, you've had your own company. What's going on with you now these days? Um, so I started my uh, own company about a year ago. Uh, it's called Zebra Global, and uh, Zebra Global is a highly selective blockchain PR and market entry consulting firm, and we specialize in uh, Asian markets, and specifically Chinese and Japanese market. So we work with some of the top companies in the industry, uh, and we act like the bridge between international blockchain markets, and we help their products and services enter Asian markets and capture the opportunities here. And so you're currently still uh, running yes. Zebra Global. Okay. Yeah, so blockchain is... Uh, we, we've been hearing blockchain, Bitcoin, and obviously you have experience in that. What is blockchain? 
Um, so blockchain uh, is a distributed, decentralized public ledger, and the distributed ledger is a database that records all transactions that have ever occurred in the blockchain network, and it's like shared and uh, synchronized along among the network's participants uh, across the world, and it allows transactions to have uh, public witnesses, so it makes a cyber attack more difficult. And underlying this um, technology um, is blockchain, and which is the technology that created Bitcoin. Okay, so what what is the purpose of this technology? Is it just to, I guess, um, eliminate a third party? Yeah, yeah, that's like basically what it's or, about. It's like okay. to give um, like financial freedom. Okay. To back to the people. Yeah. Okay. Which is like a big responsibility because uh, when you have. Uh, when you are trading like Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency, it's like you have uh, your public key and your private key. And if you lose your password, which is your private key, and then you lose your assets. And that's on you. <laughs> yeah. okay. So I, I just want to make sure I understand this correctly. So um, book chain, uh, excuse me, blockchain is like the, I guess, the digital record keeping yeah. part of... Um, it's basically a database. Uh, basically yeah. a database to make transactions yeah, exactly. and eliminate a third party. Yeah. Okay. And I would say Bitcoin is the most like practical implementation okay. of blockchain so far. Okay. Yeah. I think the catalyst for me taking interest in Bitcoin is the potential to bring economic freedom to everyone because it's peer-to-peer uh, -peer and it's operated by a decentralized network with a transparent set of rules. Um, which is not like government issued and controlled currencies like Japanese yen, US dollars. Because with Bitcoin, it's like you own it and no bank or government can freeze your account or take your money away. And um, Bitcoin transactions by design is not linked to a person or an identity. So the transactions are anonymous and can be done with very little fee compared to international bank transfer, which basically they check your background, like you have to qualify to make an international bank transfer and has very high fees and also like amount limit. And uh, with Bitcoin, you can spend it like peer to peer and it's borderless and uh, with complete freedom. Yeah. Wow. I really like the description someone told me when I was first learning about blockchain, where they said um, this happens a lot. But they gave me an example of like a Latin American country where um, basically the government took this family's land. And they could do that. Who Who's going to go against the government? Like these small people, they can't really do that. So the government took their land away from them and they had they didn't have enough money to fight it. But this happens all the time. Like governments are taking uh, the people, especially like Native Americans land and everything. But if you have um, the property on a blockchain where there's multiple like uh, verifications, like this land belongs to these people, if the government tries to take the land uh, there's more proof to say like, hey, wait a minute, that that doesn't belong to you. But if there, if the um, the property ownership is not on the blockchain, then the government can erase like the data, or um, they can say like, no, this was always our land, you know. Mm, okay. So it puts the power back uh, to the people. So everyone has access to this. Everyone can check this. Everyone knows whose this is. Yeah, I think fundamentally people's obsession of Bitcoin is basically our obsession with freedom mm -hmm. and um, privacy, yeah, which is a really big part. Yeah. And I think we can see that it's like in China, like cryptocurrency is so huge. Oh, okay. Yeah, just like people love Bitcoin because everything is so like centrally controlled by the government that uh, people, like as a Chinese person, you cannot move your uh, financial assets overseas. 
there's like a very low uh, limit actually. Um, I mean, when I had my own company, basically my business partner um, is in Beijing. And then uh, at first we tried to pay salary in fiat. So basically she would transfer um, like Chinese yuan to me and then I can take out Chinese yuan in Japan, but I can only take out $10,000 in a year. That's wow. like an annual limit. Wow. And that's what, that's like two months salary. <laughs> yeah, and that's about it. Yeah, so I, I, so I would say for businesses, it's like, especially moving your assets around and then you want to, um, uh, you know, cash out in like different currencies, like cryptocurrency is great. Yeah. What are the elements of blockchain? Like who manages it? Uh, so I would say it's managed by the network. So there are people called like miners, like for like, for example, Bitcoin miners. And basically they um, restore, like they record the transactions and then they help to keep blockchain safe, I would say. And then so so these are the people like they could be anywhere in the world. And right. then these are the people that um, operate the network, which is like decentralized. Yeah. Okay. And, and who can be miners? How do you is it just anybody? Is it I mean, like, uh, yeah, I think uh, at first. I think when Bitcoin first started, like being a miner is really easy. But these days, it's like you would need um, like specific hardware. Okay. Or like, for example, like cloud mining, which is like you use your computer that mm. you don't need like like very expensive hardware. Um, but these days, like the requirements is higher. So you have to actually invest in a little bit of money to do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because uh, I guess I was thinking about like checks and balances. And I guess I'll just go, go on to ask you, um, you know, obviously there are people who oppose you know, blockchain and cryptocurrency, and um, they say it doesn't really eliminate trust, and ultimately, you know, people are still responsible for this technology, and then, you know, what if it fails? You know, what if these people are, um, you know, trying to scam you, or, or you know, they're, they're part of some corruption, you know, that's going on within the technology? What, what do you say to that? Um, how, like, yeah, speak to the, the trust part and security of blockchain right i think the trust part is just like um because you're responsible for your own assets so sometimes for example if you lose your password or someone hack your account um you cannot get it back basically yeah so i think it's still like a speculative and experimental asset class and the market is still very volatile mm -hmm. and um this week we saw almost like a 50 percent drop in bitcoin price Okay. Um, and basically because of the panic over coronavirus uh, and then there's a oil price plunge mm -hmm. and it's made worse by the infamous Chinese scam plus token because they're liquidating over a hundred million dollars in the market, mm -hmm. which brought the uh, price down a lot. Um, I think like global macro factors like coronavirus have always influenced financial markets. And that's not just cryptocurrency, but also like the traditional stock market. Um, the stock market is also suffering from its worst drop since 1987, mm -hmm. but it doesn't deny the potential of Bitcoin and blockchain technology. You you have some interest in that, right, Jasmine? Uh, definitely. But like regarding the markets, so I'm a holder or hodler. Okay. So the market going up and going down, whether you're investing in cryptocurrency or any market, um, I just keep buying, 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 no matter if it goes up, goes down, because there's... You can trade, like I do do trading sometimes, <laughs> but um, I think that's the safest option to be, quote unquote, beat the market is to hold long term. Okay. Yeah, I think it's all about like what you believe in. Mm. It's like we believe like Bitcoin will be a mainstream currency. Yes. Yeah. I believe that. Yeah. So um, now is a good time to buy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So how, so 
what what it going into the future and say um people start to invest more in this technology and currency do you see banks being less used or having less influence yeah i think they would have less uh, less influence mm-hmm. but I mean, even for like banks, they can adopt blockchain technology, which is, um, for example, like JP Morgan is already doing because it's a technology like you don't necessarily need to use Bitcoin. You can create your own token and you can manage your clients like assets with this technology, which make it more secure. Yeah. So there's like a lot of ways to use the technology. Okay. I think it's important for people to like separate um, blockchain and Bitcoin because it's two different things. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, where do you get um, up-to-date information on crypto news? Because I know like a lot right. of, because oh, I watch a lot of YouTube videos on cryptocurrencies, and I know a lot of people are like all for it, and they don't want to say any of the negatives. And then you have the bashers who are only going to say the negatives. So where do you find the most reliable news on cryptocurrencies, on right. blockchain, and on new technical technological advancements? Um, I mean, I would say I read Coin Telegraph every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, and especially if you um, follow their Telegram, they basically send you like flash news that everything that's happening, and then click on what is interesting. And then when I want to see, um, like for example, uh, discussions, I usually go to Reddit. Yeah, <laughs> I think Reddit yeah. is where it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have another question. How did you get interested in blockchain? Like, what was the go getter? Just like, yes, I I want in on this. How did you get interested? I think it's when I first came across Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is um, late 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, back then, I was actually still working on um, a project with Google, which is uh, Women Well. Mm-hmm. And then actually, um, I was at like March 2018. I finished the projects. And uh, uh, one of my friends, he started a wealth management project on the blockchain. Uh, they're from like Switzerland, and then they did a fifty million dollar ICO, mm-hmm. and then basically they were looking for people who can help them in the Asian markets. And then I started working for them. I joined them, and uh, yeah, I really like working in the industry so far. Mm. Yeah, I think that there's a big opportunity for women. Yes, uh, that's my next question. How do you tie in your interest in blockchain with uh, your women initiatives? Um, I would say my passion with promoting uh, women in blockchain starts with you know, realizing that women account for less than 10% in the industry, which is actually a shocking number. And I think at a time when female equality in business is so important and relevant, like blockchain space should be no exception. Uh, And this matters so much because when early investing creates all the big winners and these winners are predominantly male, uh, I think like this new and disruptive technology is a unique chance for women to find their way to the top. Because technology is the future. And um, I think in this industry, another um, factor that I really like is that it's so global. So you get to travel a lot. And I think for, I mean, for anyone, it's not just for women, is that travel is a fantastic self-development tool. Because it extradates you from the value of your own culture. And it shows you that another society can live with entirely different values and still function and not hate themselves. Mm -hmm. And I just like, I learned so much from like traveling and working with these like new technologies and getting into the more technical side. Yeah, I think there's a big opportunity for women. Mm-hmm. So I remember when uh, I was in university and Bitcoin was just released. And from that time, what was it? It was like 2000, I don't want to give away my age. But anyway, <laughs> I remember when Bitcoin was first released and for like, what, five to 10 years, it 
it seemed intimidating to try to learn. And a lot of the information was saying like the same words over and over. And I couldn't understand, like nothing was clicking. So if you were to introduce women to like maybe like uh, housewives or stay at home mothers or that's the same thing, right? <laughs> uh, if you were just um, trying to get more women into blockchain or into uh, cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin, what do you think the hook would be? Like, what do you think could um, connect them in their individual personal lives? Right. Yeah, I think like uh, investing in crypto and working in the industry are like a li- uh, is a little bit different. But actually, to my own surprise, that. Uh, I was reading this statistics from Japan Virtual Currency Exchange Association that 55% of the registered uh, crypto traders in Japan are female. And um, wow. 33% are in their 20. And uh, the reason why, I and, and I think especially for uh, stay-at-home moms uh, or like young professionals, I think because of like Japanese, uh, just like how Japanese society is structured, because traditional paths for wealth, like working hard at a company or like running your own business is not typically available to Japanese women. Yes. But with this technology, women can forge their own path and then create a new path to personal wealth, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting number. You said 50%? More than 50. More it's than like 50%. 55%. 55%. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah, and I think when we like look at like stock market, it's like when stock market was just you know, being built and um, most of the trading volume come from housewives as well. Ooh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Would you happen to know the number of uh, female investors in Western countries? Oh, no, I, no? I actually don't. Yeah. Okay, no worries. Yeah. yeah, but you said, I mean, that's, that's a pretty high number. And you said that's that's Japan only. Though. That's Japan, yeah. Wow. All right, so I think that about wraps up the episode. Yeah. Um, any last words, ladies? No? You got, you got a question <laughs> or a comment? A question. <laughs> yes. Um, so... Going back to earlier in this podcast, you mentioned how your personal definition of success is being financially free and then giving back to um, people like from your past or like just around you. Right. So how um, what piece of advice would you give other people uh, in regards to the information that you have already gained in your pursuit of financial freedom or um, in your entrepreneurial pursuits? Uh, so if you see someone who wants to take the same route as you, uh, for example, those are my definitions right, of success yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I love entrepreneurship and being financially um, abundant. <laughs> um, so what have you already figured out down your path to success that you would advise to someone else? I mean, actually, this advice, it doesn't sound very inspiring. It's just practical. It's like, don't burn yourself out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Because personally, I've had, um, like, actually, very recently, maybe, like, in December, like, I had a, a experience of burning out, which actually led me into, like, light depression and also, like, a tumor in my body because of um, just, like, work stress and lack of sleep, lack of nutrition. Um, because I think you can only make your highest contribution towards the things that really matter once you give yourself permission to stop trying to do everything and mm-hmm. to stop saying yes to everyone is to live by design and not by default, uh, which is something like we all forget when we get just like too busy and then we do too much work. Um, and then I think it's like like other than when you're working towards your goal, it's important to uh, renew yourself like professionally and personally, uh, as in like pay attention to what you do on a daily basis, like mm-hmm. what's your habits. Uh, so from my favorite book, 
So Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. My favorite story is actually about um, sharpening the saw, which is, um, so the story goes like, you come across someone in the woods sawing down a tree. Uh, what are you doing? You ask. Can't you see? I'm sawing down this tree. The person answers. And you look exhausted. How long have you been at it? Over five hours. And I'm beat. This is hard work. The person replies. Well, why don't you take a break for a few minutes and sharpen the saw? I'm sure it will go a lot faster, you suggest. And he says, are you stupid? I don't have time to sharpen the saw. I'm too busy sawing. And I think that's like my favorite story. It's just like really just like don't burn yourself out. And then um, always renew yourself personally and professionally through like physical exercise, uh, meditation, like reading, and always like make sure you're inspired make sure you're learning and growing. Yeah. Uh, to follow that up, could I uh, just, what are your recommended books? Maybe like two or three? My favorite two books, like my number one favorite is definitely Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by uh, Stephen, uh, Stephen Covey. Um, because it's, like I said, it's about like live by design, not by default, and to develop self-discipline and develop habits that in everything you do, you know, you keep yourself inspired, you keep learning, you keep growing and find ways to better yourself and everything around you. And then um, my second favorite book is like, Actually, when I lose motivation along the way or when I'm just like exhausted, I always go back to this one is uh, The Alchemist. That's my favorite book. Um, yeah. And okay. my favorite quote is that when you want something, all the universe conspires in helping you to achieve it. Yes. And that's what I believe is like if you want something, um, just like do the work. Yes. Yeah. That's just like it's so simple. Yes. Yeah. Just like, like commit and do the work and then you get it. Yeah. Yes. I agree. All right. I think that's a beautiful way to close out. All right. Thank you, ladies, for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yes. Thank you so much, Cliff. Thank uh, you. All right. And you're listening to Tokyo Speaks. We're available on all podcast streaming platforms. And yeah, check us out. Give us a listen. Thank you. Thank you.